0: filler in business books and audiobooks takes up time that you don't have. You're here because you want the golden nuggets from each book without all the BS. The more you learn, the more power you have to affect the world around you. This is the Cut the Crap Podcast. Never read a book again. And here's your host, Ryan Calagari. Hey, what's going on? Thank you so much for joining me on another episode Of Cut the Crap Podcast where I make sure you never have to read a book again because I'm going to do that for you. Week after week, I'm going to put in the time reading that business book and every single week I'm going to bring those golden nuggets from that business book to you, saving you a ton of time so you don't have to sit there and read a book. All right, now before we crack into today's book, I want to remind you to go to cutthecrappodcast.com. If you haven't already done it, Sign up for the weekly mind maps. It's going to put you on a mailing list where every single week I'm going to take the golden nuggets from each book and put it in a mind map format for you. I'm going to send that out on Monday so that you have it to follow along with the podcast. Go ahead, make notes on it, make highlights. It's all right there in the mind map. Utilize it. Go to cutthecrappodcast.com and sign up for those. All right. Today, the second book in the Malcolm Gladwell run, David and Goliath. Now, before I get into this book, I'm going to say this is my second book in the uh, Malcolm Gladwell run. Probably the last book, too. Honestly, I'm having a tough time reading these books. First off, I love Malcolm Gladwell. Smart guy, you know, but his books are dry. And as a business person, I'm reading it because I'm trying to take something from that. I'm trying to take something, a philosophy, a way of looking at things, a strategy, whatever it is. I'm trying to take something back to my business, I'm not getting that from these books. In fact, it's very rare. It's tough. The last book, David and Goliath, 360 some pages. And I took four golden nuggets from the book. Four. I mean, the things I took from the book, I still will apply to my own philosophy, and I do find it valuable. Not to say that there's nothing valuable in the book. And something I've always believed was, no matter what it is, uh, a seminar, uh, an online course, reading a book... If you're able to take just one thing from that, just one golden nugget from that, then it was all worth it because it'll make you better, more experienced, more knowledgeable about something that you didn't know before. And it's all knowledge. It's all collective knowledge. So it's valuable. So while I might harp on Malcolm Gladwell, it's not to say that there's nothing valuable in any of his books. I mean, I had a number of takeaways last week. I have some takeaways this week as well, too. But essentially the reason why I, I kind of got into it was because they're so popular. They're incredibly popular among business people, you know, CEOs, managers, whoever it is. And so I figured, okay, I must be missing something here. I personally feel that if I'm going to bring a book to you every single week, I better bring a little bit more depth to you and a little bit more Golden Nuggets. And I feel that the amount of time and the amount of pages that I'm reading here is just not worth it when there's so many other good books out there that I could be bringing to you every single week. So I did say I was going to go on the big Malcolm Gladwell run. I bought um, What the Dog Saw and Tipping Point, but I'm going to... Shelf those for now, and I'll come back to those in later months, perhaps. We'll see. But I think that uh, two books from Malcolm Gladwell uh, two weeks in a row is enough, and I think I'm going to focus on something a little bit more valuable, in my opinion, and maybe yours as well, too, uh, next week when we kick things off. So uh, again, David and Goliath, the reason why I picked this book up is, you know, I'm a champion of the small business, small, medium-sized companies. They're looking up at the big companies the big consulting companies, the big product companies, whatever it is, they're looking up to them and saying, man, like, how do we beat them? How do we beat them? We don't have the access to resources or connection or funding that they do. So how do we compete with them? How do we beat them? That's why I picked up this book because I was hoping for some strategies, different philosophies, different approaches to take as a small business, a medium-sized business, uh, an entrepreneur, somebody who's just starting out and competing with the big guys, I mean, on the book cover itself, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. I mean, it's all right there. So I was really, really excited to break into this one. Like I said, I only took four golden nuggets from it. The four golden nuggets I took from it are solid. And I wouldn't put them in there if I didn't learn anything from that or if I didn't think you could learn anything from it. So enough of me talking about it. Let's just crack right into it. Golden nugget number one. Comparing ourselves to our more talented peers prevents us from reaching our full potential. Gladwell believes that if we compete and compare ourselves to others who are better than us, what this is going to do is going to sap our confidence in our own abilities, which is eventually going to lead us to a path of failure. That's rough. That is really rough. I have a tough time believing Gladwell and, and really buying into this one, but uh, he uses an example of students that attend high-ranking colleges. He believes that students that compete with the elite of the elite are at a far higher risk of dropping out because they see themselves as lesser than their peers. He gives us a term. He calls it relative deprivation, where we compare ourselves against our peers and feel less than them because they are seemingly more talented than us. So it's a very interesting perspective that he brings to this argument. So what's his advice? His advice for the folks, the businesses, the individuals who are looking up and saying, man, we're just not there yet. What's his advice? Gladwell says that instead of competing against the best of the best in an attempt for peer recognition, which I don't necessarily think that's what this is about. It's not about peer recognition. It's about bettering ourselves. But in any case, he believes that instead of doing that, we need to carve out our own niche, And allow ourselves to flourish in that chosen area. Okay, so I got to be honest with you. I'm confused on this one. So I understand what he's saying on one hand. He's saying if we compare ourselves to others who are better than us, it makes us feel inadequate. And it might give us the impression that we're not good enough. And we're just not going to get there. And so we feel terrible about ourselves. And it starts to become a self-fulfilling prophecy where... We just get worse as we think there's so much better than us. And, oh, that path there, it's going to be too long, too tough. We're not going to be able to get there. But then he gives us his advice. And his advice is carve out a niche and allow ourselves to flourish in that chosen area. Well, yeah, I, I definitely agree with that. I mean, that's good strategy, good business strategy, good individual developmental strategy. I mean, anybody can be a marketer, but you can become a great marketer in small business uh, that focuses on technology. You can become a great salesperson uh, selling services. You can become a great innovator, a product developer for you know large tobacco companies. Whatever it is, you can choose what you want to be really great at and get really deep in that area. Absolutely. Definitely. But you don't think that if you carve out a niche for yourself, there's somebody already there doing it. It's very, very rare that you find a niche where there's nobody in there already. So you're always going to be facing People who are better than you. People who have more experience. People who have more resources, more connections. That's reality. There's always going to be people who are better than you. Who said that competing against the best of the best was a bad thing? To me, it's a positive thing. It's a good thing. To be the best, you have to train with the best. You have to compete against the best. You have to learn from the best. It's a good thing as long as if, here's the key, you're mentally prepared to fight to get what you want. If you're not mentally ready, then you should absolutely, yes, lower your standards or chart out a different path that doesn't cross their own. But the idea that comparing ourselves to our more talented peers prevents us from reaching our full potential is ridiculous. I completely disagree with that. I'll use an example with sports, okay? I was raised in the martial arts from a very young age. And at the very beginning of my, um, you know, my martial arts, uh, whatever you want to call it, um, my foray into martial arts, when I first started, I was getting my butt kicked at tournaments all the time. I was getting punched in the face, hit in the liver, knocked down, you know, leaving bruised, beat up. I was in bad shape when I was younger. And I mean, I, when I say I was younger, I was about 12 years old when I first started in martial arts and, you know, it was a little bit of contact there. So and I was getting my butt kicked on a regular basis, could never even touch my opponents. And so I started to feel lesser than everybody else because it was very clear. There was first place and there was last place. And I was last place every single time. I was terrible. So instead of taking the "what was me type of approach, I wanted to fight for what I wanted to get. I wanted to be on the top of that podium. I wanted to have the gold medal wrapped around my neck. I wanted that. So I started to train with people who were better than me. I started to train with people who are beating me, who are faster than me, stronger than me. And as a result, a few years later, I was competing against the people that used to beat me and I beat them on a regular basis and went undefeated. Now, I don't tell you that to brag. I'm telling you that to demonstrate a point to you that if you want to raise your game, if you want to become the best, you have to train with the best. You have to learn from the best. That to me is the reality. And I think if you talk to Anybody in any type of field, in any type of sport, anybody who's trying to become the best, they'll tell you that by training with the best, that raising their standards helped them achieve their success. So, I don't necessarily agree with Malcolm when he says that if we compare ourselves to our more talented peers, it could set us up for failure. I mean, that might be the case if you're not mentally prepared to fight for it, but if you want to become the best, again, I reference this all the time, but If you go back to episode two, The Dip, by Seth Godin, everything to deal with success is about the dip. If you want to become the best, if you want to go through that dip and get to the top of the hill, you're going to have to fight. You're going to have to go through some really tough times, really hard times, to get to where you want to get. So that's my opinion. A very different approach to how we look at things here. Malcolm Gladwell, he believes that comparing ourselves to more talented people prevents us from reaching our full potential. I believe that by putting ourselves in the same ring as those best people, it'll force those who are prepared to fight to raise their game. Now I'm interested in what you think, though. What's your opinion? What do you think? What side of the spectrum do you sit on? Do you sit on mine? Do you sit on Malcolm's? Neither one is right or wrong. I'm not right or wrong. Malcolm's not right or wrong. They're just different opinions, and those opinions are based on how we grew up. How our minds are sort of hardwired to believe how we approach competition, how we approach people who are better than us. Anyways, I can go on this point forever. Let me know what you think. Send me an email, Ryan.calajury at me.com. Message me on Twitter, at ryancalajuri, or message me on LinkedIn. Either one, I'd love to hear your opinion. What side of the spectrum you sit on when it comes to this golden nugget? Golden nugget number two. Growing up in a privileged environment can prevent you from learning life lessons that makes you more successful in life. So naturally, you'd believe that growing up in a wealthy family would give you a leg up in life. You have access to resources, education, and money that gives you an immediate advantage. However, growing up in a privileged environment can actually do more harm to you than good. And the reason for this is because if you grow up getting everything you need, you'll never truly understand how to fight for what you want in life because everything is handed to you. Interesting perspective, Malcolm Gladwell. Very interesting perspective. So he goes on with an example of a child that grows up into a poor family. He says that this child will learn what it takes to fight for what he or she wants because very little was given to them. They come from a family that had to work hard to get what they wanted. So their life, their life experience, teaches them valuable lessons on what it takes to earn a dollar and work hard to change their life. But if that child grows up into a very successful individual and they earn enough money to become wealthy on their own, this luxury will then rob their own children of those valuable lessons. All right, so I have two really big bones to pick with Malcolm on this one. The first one that really kind of irks me is that in Outliers... Gladwell talks about how growing up into poor families can prevent you from becoming successful and how growing up into rich families will increase your chances of success. The two arguments completely contradict each other, which makes me question Gladwell's position on the matter. What is it? What's going to make you more successful, growing up into a rich family or a poor family? And the other bone that I have to pick with him on this one is that when you grow up into a a poor family... He's making it sound like growing up into a wealthy family, you don't know what it's like to work hard. That is just not true. That's completely inaccurate. In fact, it could be the complete opposite in that somebody who went from a rags to riches story, they know how to work hard. They're probably putting in more time, more energy into perfecting their craft, into getting the specific result that they want. And the idea that, oh, if I just become wealthy, life is all easy all of a sudden. No, you have to maintain that lifestyle, which means you have to work just as hard, if not harder, to continue getting what you want. So I think that it's completely inaccurate to say that if you grow up into a poor family, um, you're going to have an advantage over those that didn't. And I disagree with his fact that if you grow up into a wealthy family, it's going to make it easier for you. This whole argument here, comes down to two things, resources and resourcefulness. That's what it comes down to, in my opinion. If you grow up into a wealthy family, you have access to resources that can take you from point A to point B. You might have the money, the resources, the connections, whatever it is, you have that to get you to where you want to get to in life. That's not to say it's going to make it easier. You might think bigger. You might think more complex but you have the resources to take you from point A to point B. Now, does that mean that if you grow up into a poor family and you don't have access to resources, that all of a sudden you're at a disadvantage? Not at all. Not at all. Resources are not the end all and be all. And that's the message that I want to give to people who are in sales departments, marketing departments, product development departments, who think, ah, you know what? If only we had more money, we could do more work. No, it's not about resources. It's about resourcefulness you need to learn to become more resourceful. You need to think more creatively, more strategically, taking different paths to get to where you wanna get. And it's funny, I'll tell you a quick story here. When I worked with teams that wanted to develop new products, new services, new offers, they wanted to develop innovations. They would get their marching orders from the top down. They would get their marching orders from the executive team. And that executive team put in place tactical constraints. And those constraints told the innovation team what they couldn't do. You know, you couldn't use this kind of money. You can't get in this area. You can't focus on this market. And it's so funny what always happens here. The innovation teams that were responsible for coming up with the ideas, they would look at the constraints and say, oh, why would they put that there? If only we didn't have that there, think about what we could do. And it was my job to look at them and say, no, 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 those constraints are there for a reason. If you had those constraints gone, it would be easy. They're asking for resources. I'm encouraging them to be resourceful. Think in a different direction. You can't go in that direction. It's a brick wall. So I want you to break through and find a different way to achieve success despite not having access to those resources. And what came out of that was always something that was unique. It was different. It meant something to the marketplace because it forced them to think differently. It forced them to be resourceful because they didn't have the resources to become successful. That's the key here. That's the big takeaway that I want you to remember from this. Whether you're in marketing, whether you're in sales, if you're in product development, if you are an entrepreneur starting up your business, chances are you're gonna lack resources. Don't allow that to define you and say, I can't be successful because I don't have this. I hear far too many people say, you know what? If only we had what they had, we'd be in a much better position. No, be more creative, be more innovative, be more resourceful, be more aggressive, be more persistent to get to where you want to get in life, to go from point A to point B. If you don't have the vehicle to get there, then you got to find a way to make the vehicle to get you there. I hope that makes sense. And it gets me pumped up because this to me is my life. I very rarely had resources to get what I wanted. I always had to be creative. I always have to be resourceful. So I believe in the power of resourcefulness. I believe that I don't need as many resources as a lot of people would think they need because I have my mind. I have my creativity. I have persistence. And you know what? If I have that, I can go anywhere. And that's what you need to develop. So to summarize this whole thing, rich, poor, to me, it doesn't matter. It comes down to two things, resources or resourcefulness. If you have resources to go from point A to point B, great, that's fantastic. If you don't have resources, rely on your resourcefulness. That'll take you from point A to point B as well. And you know what? I'd rather have resourcefulness than resources because guess what? I'll never run out of resourcefulness. Golden nugget number three. Underdogs can succeed if they explore the unconventional. So we've all read books or movies that are made about underdogs that win against incredible odds as they defeat or go beyond their competition. Let's be real here. Most of the time, that's just not the case. In fact, the majority of the time, it's not the case. When it comes down to it, the bigger, stronger rival is often the one that wins in a head-to-head battle. Now, I stress their head-to-head battle. If an underdog can't win in a head-to-head battle with the bigger rival, they need to explore unconventional means in order to increase their chances of success. So Gladwell tries to make his point by bringing up stories of war. In war, there are a lot of examples where the smaller army was able to defeat a much larger, stronger, better equipped army by employing unconventional tactics and not directly going head-to-head with them. And a study that he brought up found that underdogs in warfare won 63% of their battles when employing unconventional tactics, as opposed to just 29% when they employed conventional tactics. Now that's interesting. Now it's got my attention here. So how does an underdog decide what kind of unconventional tactics they should use to help them win? All underdogs need to focus on their own unique qualities that maximize their own strengths and avoid situations where the competitor's strengths are well-suited. This, to me, is absolutely fascinating. This is all about strategy. This is all about strategy. What is the approach that we're going to take as a business, as a department? What are we going to do to set ourselves apart and to drive growth in an area within the marketplace that our competitors can't touch? What's our competitive edge? What's our compelling competitive advantage? So this is something, this whole concept of being an underdog and competing with the big guys is something that I have thought about for the majority of my career. Because that's the position I'm always in. There's always somebody bigger, better. um, You know, they have a greater marketing presence, a greater sales presence. They have more resources. So I always had to focus, like I said in the last Golden Nugget, on being resourceful. So one story that I have top of mind, a personal story, was a small software company that I was contracted with. They had a great survey platform that they sold to companies, and these companies would use this software platform uh, to help them understand their customer satisfaction rates, their employee engagement levels, things like that. So this was a really, really tough product to sell to the marketplace because there were so many bigger players that did something very, very similar. So what were we to do? We could have done what a lot of people do and just continue to you know, market the hell out of our product on social media. We could have done more email campaigns, sponsor events, more cold calls, whatever it was. We could have just continued to go harder, 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 and, and hopefully we would have grown and gotten some leads. But that wasn't the approach we took. Instead, we took a more strategic approach and focused on some of our key strengths here. So we decided to focus on the tight network that the CEO had with sports organizations. He was buddy-buddy with a few organizations and sports teams. So we figured, you know what? If we can get the three organizations that you're buddies with using our platform, then maybe this could be the start of a potential niche for us. So that's exactly what we did. We got three out of the three organizations signed up to the platform who became references and connections for other sports teams who also signed up. They went from being in debt and not making a lot of money to making $12 million a year in recurring revenue because we focused on something more specific. We focused on a strength that we had and we exploited that strength. And the strength was the relationships that the CEO had. And then that strength turned into us understanding sports organizations even better than our competitors. And then we demonstrated that by leveraging our relationships and our experience in this field by getting into new markets, new sports teams. How cool is that story? I will never forget that story only because it was it was a hypothesis. We didn't know if this was going to work. We just put it out there and we said, let's try it. Let's see if this works. And it ended up working. And it is awesome. It feels so rewarding when you go through something like that. So that's a personal story of my own, but there are so many different stories out there just like that, that you know as well, too. I'll give you a few right here. Netflix. So when I say Netflix, you think, oh, come on, man. Netflix, they're a monster. Netflix conquered the beast at the time, Blockbuster. We all remember Blockbuster, right? We laugh at Blockbuster, but Blockbuster was killing it. In 2004, Blockbuster was making $6 billion in revenue while Netflix was struggling to pull in $500 million a year. Now, $500 million is clearly nothing to laugh at, but it's not $6 billion. The unconventional approach that Netflix took was to offer more convenience every step of the way. So first, they explored movies through the mail, And that's what they tried to do. It was kind of a, a, what was it, um, a Columbia House type of offer. And it didn't quite work out that way. So they decided to shift gears and look into streaming. And we all know how that one ended up. In 2000, Blockbuster actually turned down a deal to buy Netflix for $50 million. Ten years later, Blockbuster declared bankruptcy and closed all stores in 2013, while Netflix had 30 million subscribers. So their unconventional tactic was to change how the consumer received their movies, and it was all based on convenience. Now, how's that for a cool story? All right, so I have one more story for you. I can do this all day. I love these stories. Cliff bars. Now, I don't know if you've had a cliff bar before. I eat cliff bars all the time. We have them at the office all the time. I love them. They're great. So the popular cliff bar was once an underdog facing off against a dominant market leader in power bars. Power bars. Power bars. So funny enough, Cliff Bars were actually created in the creator's mom's kitchen when he was in need of a high-protein, high-carb snack. So quite the humble beginnings for Cliff Bar. Their unconventional approach was to be a cross between a cookie and a granola bar to be preservative-free, non-dairy, and certified kosher. So by exploiting this unique approach and continuing down this path, not giving up, in 2013, Cliff's Total retail sales exceeded Power Bar for the first time. So, going from his mom's kitchen to bringing in greater retail sales than that of Power Bar, that's a great story of rags to riches. It's a great story of using an unconventional approach, something that's different in the marketplace, to achieving dominance in the market. There are so many different stories like this. You can look at underdogs like Apple. Bell Telephone, Ben & Jerry's, Home Depot, Samuel Adams, The Body Shop, Under Armour. Every single one of these right now, you look at them, you say, they're huge. Yes, but they weren't huge back in the day. If you want me to go into detail on some of these stories, I'd be happy to have a conversation with you about it, to share some of these stories with you. If you're looking for some inspiration on, you know, underdogs coming up and becoming dominant leaders, I can share a lot of these stories with you. I mean, like I said, I, I obsess on these stories. This is... These are the worlds that I work in. I work with small companies, medium sized companies, and they all want to grow and yet when they grow, it all seems so difficult i can 't see it you know i just don 't don 't picture it so I need to have stories like these to pump up the teams that I work with because it 's really tough growth isn 't easy it 's really, really hard, and you have to have that mindset to fight to win so it 's always great to have these stories in your back pocket to reference when uh, you know things are tough and people need a little bit of motivation but I love this, um, this, this Golden Nugget here and the next one, actually, were the reasons why I picked up this book. And like I said at the very beginning, if I can come away with one or two Golden Nuggets, it was worth it. And so I think this one especially, Underdogs Can Succeed If They Explore the Unconventional, big fan of this one. All right, and the fourth and final Golden Nugget from David and Goliath, Success Requires Risk in Upsetting the Apple Cart. So to achieve outstanding levels of success, you're going to need to take some risks. And those risks you take, they're going to piss a lot of people off. But it's because of people acting in spite of rejection from their peers that we've experienced many revolutions and innovations today. Gladwell calls these people the disagreeable ones. The people that don't care what others think about them or their decisions. So to support this, Gladwell tells us that many entrepreneurs have traits of disagreeableness according to a study conducted by a group of psychologists. This study showed that many leaders achieved their level of success because of their level of conviction to their chosen beliefs. These beliefs caused their peers to shun them, but they continued to persevere despite that. The disagreeable ones. I love that. So the lesson here is that to be successful, you have to be prepared to upset people. It's going to happen. And when you upset people, it's probably because you're taking a risk that goes against the status quo. If you're a product developer, if you're an innovator, if you're creating new innovations, if you are a marketing person putting together a brand new campaign that maybe the company's never seen before, If you're a sales professional and you want to try a different sales strategy, you're going to be required to take your idea and put it up on stage where everyone will criticize you. If you care about what people think about you, you're going to cave. You're going to make exceptions and changes to your your plan and your concept. It's very likely going to die on stage. I've seen it happen far too often. When you care what other people think about you, you don't bring that confidence, that conviction to convince them that this is the right idea for them. You can't care about what others think about you. You need to stick to your beliefs and drive them forward. It's just that simple. Believing in yourself, wow, you know, it seems kind of fluffy. You know, you heard that since you were a kid. Believe in yourself and you can achieve anything. It's not what I'm saying here, but you do need to believe in yourself if you're going to be pushing the boundaries. If you're going to challenge the status quo, you have to be confident in yourself. Confident in your decision. That this is the right thing for your company. This is the right thing for your department. This is the right thing for your plan. Whatever it is, you have to have conviction. So as I always like to do, I like to bring a story into it. I like to bring an example to help crystallize the point. And so when we think about taking risks, when we think about upsetting the apple cart, when we think about doing something new, I go no further than Ikea. Ikea founder Ingvar Kamprad cares about furniture. He doesn't give a damn what people think about him. And it's because of that that it makes him successful and that it made IKEA successful. He succeeded thanks to his disagreeableness and not being concerned about everyone around him thinking he was crazy or thinking he was stupid or thinking he was a traitor. It comes down to this. To do innovative work, you need to be willing to take risks, to do things that others might disapprove of. And I'll tell you right now, that is easier said than done. It's not easy. In fact, it's really, really hard. And it's because society frowns upon people who are disagreeable. As human beings, we're hardwired to seek the approval of those around us. And while that is true, radical and transformative thoughts go nowhere without the willingness to challenge convention. So to bring it back to to Ingvar, his story at 1943 he was 17 years old when he founded ikea he started selling furniture five years later then in 1956 he introduced a process that we all know very well flat packing because of this innovation it made it really easy for the buyer to assemble it themselves and again we all know this very well if you've ever bought furniture from ikea you know what flat packing is because of this it saved a ton of costs So many costs that he actually faced a boycott, making it impossible for him to manufacture the furniture in Sweden anymore. So facing this challenge, what did he do? He took a risk, he upset the apple cart, and he moved his manufacturing operation to Poland. And while on the surface that might not mean a lot to you, at the time that was a very disagreeable decision to make because in 1961 that was during the Cold War. Now, that might not make sense or might not resonate with you yet. So a more modern example, it'd be like Walmart moving to North Korea today, right? That would be a big decision. That would be something that a lot of people would disagree with in a big, big way. Now, because of Ingvar's decision, people called him a traitor. But did he care? No, he didn't give a damn what people thought about him. Because he's not the kind of person who cares about what his peers think about him. He is disagreeable. And that made all the difference because today IKEA is a resounding success because of the decision that he made. Now that's an absolutely awesome story to wrap up this podcast with. The idea of being comfortable with being disagreeable and the idea that you have to take risks and you have to be comfortable upsetting the apple cart sometimes to do innovative work to challenge the status quo. All right, and there we have it. David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants by Malcolm Gladwell. So this is the second Gladwell book that I've read over the past two weeks, obviously last week being Outliers. I'm going to shelf The Tipping Point and What the Dog Saw, also by Malcolm Gladwell. I said I was going to go on a Malcolm Gladwell run, But I just feel at this point in time, we need to get a little bit deeper into other books that focus more solely on sales, marketing, innovation, strategy, management, and in general, just how to win at business. I have a lot of books on my bookshelf that I'm dying to get into. And I just think that with Malcolm Gladwell's books, they don't get that deep into it. That's not his fault. It's it's not his fault at all. He's a writer. He's not a businessman. He brings some interesting perspectives to, uh, to readers. But like I said, I'm looking for something a little bit deeper. I mean when I picked up the book Underdogs Misfits and the Art of Battling Giants I got jacked. I was really excited about that cuz I'm a guy who has always worked with organizations trying to beat the big dogs. How do we compete with these guys and always coming up with different strategies, different approaches? So coming at it from that perspective, with that expectation that I was going to get that and from the expectation that the marketplace essentially set, you know, I have a lot of peers in my network who rant and rave about his books and The man has a cult following, so I have great expectations for Malcolm Gladwell as an individual, as a writer, as somebody who brings ideas forward, and because of the title, really high expectations. So it didn't quite meet my expectations, but despite missing them a little bit, I was still happy I read the book because, like I said, I took away some golden nuggets from it that I'll incorporate into my own philosophy, into my own daily approach to how I do my work, whether it's sales, marketing, innovation, strategy, whatever it is, I'll take the golden nuggets that I learned today and incorporate that into my own approach. So I'm grateful that I picked up the book, but uh, I think it's time for a little bit of a change-up. So we'll do that next week. So before I say goodbye to you for this week, I want to remind you to go to cutthecrappodcast.com and sign up for the mind maps. So if you haven't signed up, do so, and uh, I'll make sure I get the mind maps to you every single Monday before you listen to the podcast. All right, that's a wrap. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of Cut the Crap Podcast. I'll be back here next week with a brand new business book, and brand new Golden Nuggets. Have a great week. Take it easy. Nothing is impossible. The only thing that's impossible is what you make impossible. So I need you to understand that it's not going to be an easy road. But I'm telling you, If you're willing to put in 120%, if you're willing to go all in, you can take that which was once impossible and make it possible.